0: We will hear argument this morning in case 19968, Uzabionum versus Prachevsky. Ms. Wagoner?
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. When Georgia Gwinnett officials stopped Chike Uzabunum and Joseph Bradford from sharing their faith, the officials caused concrete injuries. Chike and Joseph lost forever the chance to get those days back and speak their message to their peers. No policy change can ever restore that lost opportunity. And as this Court said in Carey, Statura, and Farrar, the appropriate remedy to redress those past harms is nominal damages. Nominal damages awards satisfy Article 3. Farrar explains that nominal damages provide relief on the merits, vindicate the plaintiff through an enforceable judgment, and modify the defendant's behavior for the plaintiff's benefit, by forcing the defendant to pay the plaintiff money. The classic Article 3 remedy for past injury. A one, ten, or one hundred dollar award satisfies Article 3 because it puts money in a plaintiff's pocket, no matter how it is labeled. Compensatory, statutory, liquidated, or nominal. The 11th Circuit's outlier rule is a radical departure. For centuries, English and American courts have awarded nominal damages when no future threat exists. Even after a plaintiff waives compensatory damages, every circuit to address the issue does the same, even the 11th, until its recent decisions. This court should retain the long-standing rule. It has not resulted in a glut of cases, and the alternative makes a mess of this court's clear Article 3 jurisprudence. Nominal damages provide a remedy in many contexts, redressing injuries that transcend price tags, from unconstitutional searches and seizures, to free exercise and due process violations, to censorship and compulsion of speech. These constitutional rights are invaluable even when they don't result in quantifiable harm. Yet the officials urge you to treat them as worthless. This court should decline that invitation and reverse. I look forward to your questions.
0: Uh, counsel, I want to understand the scope of your argument uh, first. Uh, Say, you go into court and say your rights have been violated. The judge asks, have you been damaged by that? Do you have any compensable injury? You say no, uh, and he asks, is there any, is that violation going to have any effect on you in the future? And you say no, it's not going to be repeated. And he says, well then you don't have standing, uh, I've got to throw the case out. You say, "Oh well, throw, me, throw in a buck," uh, and then the judge is supposed to say, "Yeah, well, everything's fine now." Doesn't that, doesn't that make a mockery of our Article Three requirements?
1: No, your Article Three requirements require redress, and this court has defined that as a personal, tangible benefit. The amount or the label is not necessarily significant. What is significant is that the past injury is afforded some sort of redress. Whether well, but the stolen. only
0: redress—the only redress you're asking for—is a, a declaration that you're right. Uh, you want the court to say, you know, you're right, and the dollar simply is a symbol to represent that determination.
1: There is a declaration that every judgment award would provide, regardless of whether it's compensatory or statutory or liquidated. But in addition to the declaration, there it does need to be redress for the past injury. Declar- declaratory judgments do nothing for past injuries. They only redress Well, but I, 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 page 18
0: and 19 of the respondent's brief, they go through all the authorities that say that it's not that that dollar is a small amount of compensatory damages. It is in name only. It is not damages at all.
1: That's not what this court's cases have said, or the common law, and that the significance of redressing the right—the fact that a past injury has occurred—money changes hands, as this court said in Ferrar. It modifies the defendant's behavior in a way that benefits the plaintiff, and providing money damages of any amount is significant and that it provides redress for the parties and an enforceable judgment on thank the Thank you, parents.
0: Counsel. Justice Thomas?
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I'd, I'd like to turn to something slightly different, uh, Counsel. Uh, in, in Flanagan, the um, 11th Circuit precedent that uh, uh, that uh, the, the court followed uh, at the Court of Appeals, Um The, there was no enforcement of the, uh, of of the, uh, the ordinance involved. Does that make a difference here?
1: I think it makes this case even stronger than the Flanagan's ruling, and I think that is a basis of distinction, although even Flanagan's departs sharply from the majority of circuits. In terms of this case, this case, there is a past chill with Joseph Bradford's injury, and certainly silencing Chique twice in a public place where he had a right to speak is an injury all by itself.
2: So we have said, and this is uh, somewhat a different version or similar to the Chief Justice's concern, uh, we've said that... Um, that an injury has to be real and substantial. But if you're only asking for a, uh, a dollar or nominal damages, doesn't that seem to undermine the real and substantial uh, requirement?
1: I don't think so. Congress has held that under Section 1983, the vindication of civil rights is so significant that it did away with the amount in controversy. And this court has held that vindicating constitutional rights is of the highest importance and that it is an injury in and of itself to have the government engage in misconduct and not redress that injury no matter how insignificant the damage award might be.
0: Uh, thank you. Justice Justice Breyer?
3: Good morning. Well, as, as you are aware, Congress passes lots of statutes and they have tens of thousands of words. And people frequently think that one new set of words is, is unconstitutional, at least as enforced. We're not supposed to give advisory opinions. But if somebody comes in, and the con- course of conduct under the statute or what they're going to follow uh, why why uh, is not going to be done anymore. It's the same question as the chiefs. Why, why isn't that just an advisory opinion? And you can say, well, he's hurt. All right, is Bradford hurt? I see the first part, the first plaintiff, but what about Bradford?
1: Bradford is hurt. And in terms of the court filtering out cases that are frivolous or where there is an advisory opinion. No, no, not, not
3: frivolous. How, if Bradford is hurt, who wouldn't be? That is, give me an example of a case where he says this is unconstitutional. They think it could be applied to me. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it is unconstitutional and I'm hurt because I, I, I uh, uh, I'm a school teacher and this sets up, uh, situations in the school which are unconstitutional and they're not going to be done anymore. How does he have a concrete injury? Where is his concrete injury?
1: The concrete injury comes when there's a past chill and there's a specific intent that is demonstrated in the pleadings that meets the standard in this court's holding an SBA list. For a 12B motion, which this case is on, the general allegations are sufficient to establish the facts in the case, although at a later stage, a summary judgment could be, could be considered by the court. But Joseph had a specific intent here, and Chique certainly does.
3: Bradford, why, why?
1: He had a specific intent to engage in the speech and to share his faith on the campus. He was made aware of how the, how the school threatened Chique with discipline and his speech was chilled because he didn't want to receive expulsion or suspension or some other form of discipline by engaging in these conversations.
0: Justice
4: Alito? <clears throat> you have said that uh, nominal damages serve to vindicate a past violation of a constitutional right. and. It would be helpful to me if you could perhaps explain more specifically what you mean by the vindication of a constitutional right that was violated. Do you mean simply a statement that there was a violation, which sounds a lot like a, an advisory opinion, or do you mean the award of some damages for a real Concrete violation that can't be easily monetized so if a person is told you cannot speak about a certain subject and that's a violation of the constitutional right there may not be any way to monetize the the, bio, the, the harm that is awarded to the person but is the theory that nominal damages Uh, assign a certain monetary value to this harm that can't easily be quantified in monetary terms.
1: That's precisely the theory, and it's the holding that the court reached in Carey and Stature and the lower courts have followed. It's that nominal damages vindicate the constitutional violations by entering the judgment, by requiring the payment, when other damages are not quantifiable. It's similar to statutory or liquidated damages, where there isn't necessarily quantifiable damages in those instances, but there's no question it meets Article 3.
4: Well, then, the, the challenge for you is to show that uh, early English and American nominal damages cases were based on that theory. And the respondents say that they fall roughly into two categories. Cases where nominal damages served as prospective relief from ongoing or future harms and cases where they were merely a consolation prize for failing to prove compensatory damages. And very briefly, what would be your best case or your best cases to show that that's an, an incorrect understanding of the common law situation?
1: There are hundreds of cases that demonstrate that, including Clifton v. Hooper, delayed writ executions, Burns versus Elrod, which Im- involves false imprisonment, multiple cases involving mistrained stops like Thompson versus New Orleans, as well as Doherty v. Munson, which involves illegal warrants.
0: Justice
5: Sotomayor? Counsel, um, the government, at page 30 of its brief, says that if a dispended move for entry of judgment on a plaintiff's nominal damages claim, a district court, and I'm quoting quoting them, should enter judgment on the basis of the defendant's concession alone without adjudicating the merits of the Constitutional Your reply brief didn't address that argument by the government directly. Do you think that's possible, and if it's not, why not?
1: I believe, it is your question related to whether entry of judgment would be on the merits?
5: Well, that's the question. No, if, how about if the defendant deposits a dollar, an account payable to your clients, and the district court enters judgment on that basis, would your claim then be moot? That was what the government was arguing.
1: I believe that's an open question in this court following Campbell Ewald. Certainly an offer in and of itself wouldn't be sufficient, but whether a tender would be sufficient is something this court hasn't decided. If well, if that, if
5: it's a tender, do you, re- what would require that tender to be more than the compensable damage of one dollar? Would you require an admission of liability as well? And what in our case law would require that?
1: Certainly a full tender of the relief that the plaintiff requested would involve a judgment that would be entered on behalf of the plaintiff, as well as the damages, reasonable attorney's fees, and costs. What the form of that judgment might look like seems to be in the judge's discretion. Neither party, I think, would have a right to insist on a disclaimer of an admission of liability, but that would be up to the district court's discretion. But I do think that's an issue this court should have briefing on to sharpen the issues in those instances.
5: Finally, counsel, on the Bradford claim, there was never enforcement against him. So what was the injury? If the government doesn't know that he wants to speak and denies that opportunity, um, what's the injury? the injury? It may not be that his case is, is, um, is moot, but it may be that he hasn't suffered a First Amendment injury.
1: That may well be. I think his injury was that his speech was chilled and he would satisfy this court's test and SBA list, but that isn't the issue that this court would need to decide today. I think that proves the point that injury, in fact, essentially ferrets out cases that may be advisory in nature or where a concrete and particularized harm hasn't been proven.
0: Justice Kagan?
1: Uh, Ms. Wagner, are, are you saying that nominal damages
6: are a form of compensatory damages, or are you saying something else?
1: No, they're not a form of compensatory damages, although I don't think that undermines the argument. I think that they are compensation in the sense that they are providing money to reflect the fact that damage has been done, but the amount of money it pales in comparison to the harm. It's not that the dollar means so little, it's that the violation means so much. That's why we award the damages in those instances.
6: And, and when I guess when you say
1: that, how is it different from compensatory damages? Well, compensatory damages have to be proven with specificity at trial. They uh, have to result in quantifiable harm. The value of free speech or the loss of procedural due process is nearly impossible to measure as this court has held, and there are many reasons why plaintiffs may not want to assert compensatory damages, and those are very valid reasons. And at the common law, you could even waive compensatory damages and seek nominal.
6: And I guess I always thought that... Uh that our Article Three requirements meant that people can't bring a suit for pure vindication alone, for just saying, you know what, I was right, you were wrong, uh, for the psychic satisfaction that it gives to hear a court say that. And, and I guess I wonder if this is not, by your own admission, compensatory damages. How is it that we're not in that world where the where the suit really is one? For um, you know, just a a, a a declaration that somebody else committed a wrong.
1: Well, it is compensatory in that it's requiring a defendant to play to pay a plaintiff money, and that's currency. It Chique can go out and buy a package of tracks for one ten or twenty dollars. Certainly in that sense it is, but I think the overall purpose is that because we can't measure how harmful a violation of speech is or how harmful an unreasonable search and seizure is, we want to ensure that some redress is provided in that to the plaintiff for the past injury, and damages do that. Thank
7: you. Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Good morning, counsel. Um, Your friends on the other side suggest that very little would be lost if if, uh, we required more than nominal damages uh, for standing. Uh, they point out that your client initially had a compensatory damages claim as part of this lawsuit. Why aren't they right? Um, perhaps your client has scruples against seeking more than a dollar, and others might as well, but why should the law care about that?
1: For several reasons. First of all, there are many... Plaintiffs who would be victims of government misconduct that may not be able to demonstrate compensable damages. In Chike's case, our argument was that he could because he drove to campus. But think of a student who didn't drive to campus and who couldn't quantify that harm.
7: Well, presumably they'd have bus fare, or they could they could uh, ask for the time that it took them to walk and some sort of compensation for that. Uh, It it doesn't. We have very imaginative lawyers. One thing the country doesn't lack for is imaginative lawyers with with imaginative damages theories.
1: Well, I would think that would be of some concern to the court, that we would be creating a rule... Urging plaintiffs and their counsel to make up damages that they neither want nor need nor think they should qualify for when the government's rationale for changing this rule is that they believe it would be too costly when really it will lead to protracted litigation and unreasonable search and seizure cases, for example, and not going to announce Justice Breyer recognized in Hudson that those are all nominal damages cases because it's so difficult to prove one-off violations in quantifiable ways. Thank you.
8: Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Ms. Wagner. I want to pick up on Justice Sotomayor's uh, questions and try to figure out what's really at stake uh on this issue. Um, Judge Jacobs in the Second Circuit opinion in Amato and Judge Henry in the Tenth Circuit opinion in Utah Animal Rights, their separate opinions. Both suggested, as the government does here, that there's not much at stake because a defendant can always uh, surrender to the judgment uh, on the nominal damages claims when no other claims remain. And the district court simply enters judgment without adjudicating the merits. Uh, Justice Sotomayor asked you this, but I want to probe deeper on the answer. Isn't that exactly right?
1: I don't think that there's... I don't think that it's right in the sense that there isn't much at stake for someone like Chike, who was silenced on his campus or someone subject to an unlawful knock and announce or a graduation speaker. No, My question
8: can't. My is really, uh, aren't Judge Jacobs and Judge uh, Henry and the Solicitor General here correct that the defendant can surrender the judgment on the nominal damages claim when no other claims remain and the district court enters judgment without adjudicating the merits. Isn't that correct?
1: I think that that's an open question before this court, and how it would apply in a nominal damages situation would be something that the court would want to consider. But certainly if the okay. court held then, that was full redress, then then that that would be acceptable. But full redress would need to be provided, and George has offered absolutely and then, nothing. And then
8: in that instance, what, what's the attorney's fee situation? Because uh, that may be what's... Really at stake here. What's the attorney's fee situation, in your view, with a, nom- a successful nominal damages claim?
1: I think the court has discretion to determine what the attorney's fees are. Under Ferrar, the court says that they would be a prevailing party, but most courts at the lower levels have applied the Justice O'Connor factors to look at various aspects of the case, what was asked for, and the significance of the issue that was decided. Justice Barrett?
9: Counsel, I want to go back to Justice Kagan's question. When she asked you if nominal damages were a form of compensatory damages, you said no. And, I mean, I I understand that they are not compensatory damages. You know, they, they are distinct categories, and you can't prove them with specificity, can't prove nominal damages, I mean. But I would have thought that your argument depended on nominal damages being retrospective. I, I took your argument to be that they were compensation for an hard-to-quantify or impossible-to-quantify harm. So can you explain a little bit more why you are not describing to Justice Kagan that nominal damages are backward-looking relief?
1: All damages are backward-looking relief, and I think that terms of the compensatory nature of the damages, they're compensatory in that they're redressing a harm that has occurred. They're the same pedigree as compensatory damages as well as statutory or liquidated damages.
9: So it is your position that they are compensating for a, an unquantifiable harm?
1: Absolutely. As this court articulated in Carey and Statura, it's just that it's not a quantifiable harm, and so that's the distinction I was making.
9: Okay, now I want to go back to your colloquy with Justice Breyer, and he was talking to you about Bradford's claim and asking why that wouldn't be moot. Can you identify any situation in which a case would be moot if the plaintiff also sought nominal damages? Putting aside Bradford's particular one, is there any case that would be moot if nominal damages were attached?
1: No, this court has held that damages can't be mooted, but prospective relief can be mooted. But that doesn't mean that everyone who asserts a nominal damages claim would prevail. There are many reasons why a nominal well, damage forward. Why
9: not? Because you can always come up I mean you were coming up with reasons why Bradford might have suffered some some damage. It's then hard to conceive of any any suit that sought prospective relief like a declaratory judgment or injunctive relief that had a tag-along claim for nominal damages that could survive. Sorry, I mean, that would be mooted.
1: Well, that's true if if there's a past injury, first of all. And not everyone who seeks prospective relief even has a past injury. It also assumes that there's a cause of action and a defendant amenable to those things. So while damages can't be mooted... Thank you, counsel. My
9: time is up.
0: A minute to wrap up. Counsel?
1: Thank you, Your Honor. In terms of the courts being flooded, this court, uh, in terms of the true concern about being courts being flooded with frivolous claims for relief, protracted litigation, or avoiding a drain on government resources, the longstanding rule is the rule that best resolves those concerns. Injury, in fact, ensures that cases and controversies involving concrete harms and they're not made up, there's, Excuse me, and they're not made-up claims. There's no one that contests the injury in this case. And the majority rule is consistent with Carrie and Statura. It hasn't led to a flood of claims, but instead provides remedies for victims who are subject to Discriminatory stop and frisk for prisoners who can't have kosher, need kosher meals. And the Prison Litigation Reform Act doesn't even allow compensation in those situations. Nominal damages is the only resolution. And it fosters a quicker and fairer resolution because the government can't roll the dice and then say never mind at the end of the case when the, when the odds switch.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Mupan.
10: Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court. Petitioners suffered an unquestionable Article 3 injury when respondents censored their speech, and petitioners seek the paradigmatic type of Article 3 redress for that past injury, a tangible award of money. That the amount of money is nominal is immaterial to whether an Article 3 case or controversy exists. Recognizing that the deprivation of a personal right is generally not harmless, common law courts have long awarded nominal damages as partial redress, and Congress incorporated that practice in Section 1983. Respondents' position would not just break from history and tradition, but create confusion in the law. Like nominal damages, many other forms of monetary relief are not tied to either evidence of quantifiable harm or likelihood of future violations, such as punitive, treble, and statutory damages. This court should reaffirm that such monetary relief for past injuries is proper Article three redress. I welcome this court's questions. Uh,
0: Counsel, it... it it seems to me that one of the difficulties with your case is that it melds the inquiries into standing and the merits. We have always been adamant about the necessity of addressing standing, or you know, the flip side of it, uh, responding to mootness concerns before reaching the merits. But if you have a, you have a case where there's no compensable damages, there's no concern about future uh, uh, injury, no no repetition. And uh, all that's the, on, the, on the books, assume nominal damages as you know, in name only, is a ruling on the merits. Then the standing inquiry and the merits inquiry are precisely the same. Uh, uh, why is that not right?
10: I don't think that's right for the reason this court gave in Spokio. The question is, for standing is whether there is an injury in fact. Now, in this case, that's quite easy because being, having your speech suppressed or being subject to a threat of suppression of speech is a paradigmatic No, issue. No, no, no. That,
0: that's exactly my point. That is the, simply the court saying that you're right. Uh, you, know, you immediately discuss the, the, the merits. Having your speech suppressed is an injury. What we always do is look for for standing first. Okay, you say something bad has happened to you. How have you been injured? What gives you the right to come into federal court? I don't think you can answer your injury question without saying uh, this is the resolution of the merits, and that violates the principle that standing and the absence of mootness are uh, issues that have to be addressed before the
7: merits.
10: No, I don't think so, Your Honor, because it might be that the suppression of speech is permissible under the First Amendment, but the point is that the Plaintiff wasn't able to speak. They were not able to engage in certain speech. That is an injury in fact. Now, whether the first That is a violation
0: of rights. The injury, uh, is always been understood to be something separate from, uh, prevailing on the merits.
10: So, I don't think that's consistent with the common law, Your Honor, which, uh, Article 3 is derived from. Take, for example, trespass. Merely breaking the clothes of someone's property, setting one foot. Well, on well that, the- that.
0: That has future effects since it establishes the boundary of the property. But uh, anyway, Justice Thomas? Uh,
2: thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, counsel, uh, I'd like to follow up on, uh, the point that, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was, uh, addressing. Uh, you suggest, uh, that you, the defendants in, uh, these nominal damages cases should just, uh, basically surrender and accept the judgment. But wouldn't that open them up to, uh, attorney's fees?
10: So under this court's decision, in Farrar, they, uh, the plaintiff would be a prevailing party, but then under the second step of this court's analysis in Farrar, whether the, the amount of fees that would be reasonable in a, in a nominal damages-only case would potentially
2: be quite minimal. Uh, and uh, again, just uh, uh, piggybacking a bit on what the Chief Justice uh, was raising, uh, the, if you, and, and, if there was a case, uh, uh, for nominal damages, uh, that was similar to this, but, uh, one of the plaintiffs here, but there was no enforcement as we had in the Flanagan case, um, would there be standing to uh, pursue nominal damages then?
10: I think it would turn on whether there was a credible threat of enforcement. Uh, this court has recognized that there's an injury in fact when there's a credible threat of enforcement. So to answer both your question and Justice Breyer's question from earlier, if you think of a case like Poe versus Ullman, where you had a law on the books that had never been enforced for decades, there, there might not be Article 3 standing to get into court in the first place. But if you have a credible threat of injury that would let you bring a suit, prospective suit for injunctive relief, you can likewise get, bring a retrospective suit for damages, whether those damages be compensatory or nominal. Uh,
3: Thank you.
0: Justice Breyer?
3: Thank you. I'd I'd like you to think of two opposite situations. One, Blackacre. I own Blackacre, and you come in and have picnic all the time. Now, you won't do it anymore, but I bring a lawsuit for trespass, I can't measure the damages, and nominal damages always has been given there. Opposite situation. What we have are 400 million laws, actions, policies, and let's take the subset where we don't know whether it violates the Constitution or not. We don't know. Border case. In those circumstances, if you bring the courts into every single case, they will spend an awful lot of time adjudicating those cases, though nobody is really hurt, when there are lots of people who are really hurt who need their time and effort. Okay? So we have to draw a line. And the 11th Circuit's line, not perfect, but a line, is allow it if you also could plead a claim for compensatory damages, which I think they did here. I don't know why anybody said that. But, but uh, nonetheless, that's their line. Now, if you don't like that line, you tell me what's the better line.
10: So I think the better line is your example of Blackacre. Just like in property cases, you could bring a trespass suit, even if the trespass question was a very difficult... I'm going to
3: cut you off, because in trespass, you could bring a claim for compensatory damages, just very hard
0: to prove.
10: But you never I mean, did, as Justice... As Justice Story explained in his web decision, you don't need to bring a nominal, uh, compensatory damages suit to bring a trespass suit, and it doesn't matter how complicated the property law questions posed by the trespass suit are. The, the, the alleged violation of property rights was enough to let you into court and bring a nominal damages suit. To enter the flip side of your concern, again, the defendant, if it doesn't want to pay the dollar, and doesn't want to adjudicate the suit can just pay the dollar. So there's no reason why this can will and Nobody
3: case. has to adjudicate whether it is or is not unconstitutional.
10: No, because the courts resolve constitutional questions not as an end in of themselves, but as a means to resolving a controversy between the parties. So if the plaintiff says he's entitled to a dollar, and the defendant says, "Great, I'm willing to pay a dollar," that's the end of the case. I Justice so the only cases that we really
3: have left are where we have two diehards. And they really won't give in, and they're fighting over a dollar.
10: That's exactly right. Just like Just, if you had two neighbors who insisted on fighting over a trespass suit over a dollar. Justice That's, Alito? Uh, in the real world,
4: Justice the Alito? The- Sorry. Uh, uh could you say something about Mr. Bradford's claim? The policy was never actually enforced against him. So, uh, in what sense did he suffer uh, a past injury?
10: So in the sense of SBA, List, and uh, the Virginia booksellers, he clearly faced a credible threat of enforcement given that the policy was actively enforced against others at the time, and he knew it. As a result, he... He chilled his own speech, but that's not self-censorship in the way of Clapper because there was a credible threat of enforcement. So that is a concrete harm that's fairly traceable to the government's policy. It would be a different situation if the government didn't have a policy or if the government didn't enforce their policy. Then his failure to speak would be attributable to his own actions. But in a case where the government had a policy that they were robustly and actively enforcing at the time, his self-censorship is attributable to their conduct. And that's why he has an injury that's fairly traceable, and I don't think anyone would dispute it if he had brought a suit for an injunctive relief. In fact, no one did dispute it.
4: Uh, is his situation different from that of any other student? Could ev- could every student come forward and say, I-, "I might have liked to engage in speech that is prohibited by this policy, and therefore I should get comp- uh, nominal damages"?
10: I think they would have to say I would have. I don't think it would be enough to say I might have, but if they came in and said I intended to engage in speech, but I refrained from doing so because I was threatened with severe campus discipline, uh if I did so under the policy, yes, I think every one of those people has suffered an injury in fact that that's traceable to the government's policy. Thank you.
5: Justice Soto Mayor? Counsel, um, it, it seems to defy our case law that says a generalized grievance that everyone is subject to, every student, does seems the quintessential lack of standing question. Um, that why should every citizen who believes a law is unconstitutional come into court and challenge it? And that, what, that's what it appears Mr. Bradford is doing. Um, does he have any burdens on this issue does he have to prove uh, what plans he actually made um, when he developed this plan etc i'm a little lost as to how someone can just walk into court and say that chilled me from speaking and that would be enough
10: so I guess two points, Your Honor. The first is it's not a generalized grievance, precisely because he has to make the sort of allegations you just talked about. So if someone was on college campus and never had any intention engaging in any of this speech, that person. Could
5: how do you ha- prove? How do you prove a negative? Meaning, um, I generally you look at what a person does, not what they say um, they wanted to do. Well, so no. In how do you case- read a, mi- a person's mind?
10: Well, so the plaintiff would have to allege it. He would would have to declare it and testify to it. You could cross examine him as to his sincerity. But yes, ultimately the question is, was he intending to do something and was he chilled from doing it because the government had a policy that prohibited it? And again, The plaintiffs, the respondents in this case, haven't disputed that he had standing to sue if they hadn't restricted eliminated their policy. No one is disputing that he had an injury in fact that would have let him bring a prospective suit. That is based on the same exact injury in fact that supports his retrospective claim for
5: damages. But is that an injury in fact that's compensable even with nominal damages? Meaning if he never took a step to effectuate what he wanted to do, and unlike his colleague who actually was in the midst of speaking and was stopped. So that could be, I see easily how that's an injury. But I'm not quite sure that it can be an injury in fact when you don't take actual concrete steps to do something and just merely say I had a desire.
10: Well, his concrete step is he refrained from taking action. He intended to engage in speech and didn't do so because the government threatened him with sanctions. Justice Kagan?
6: Mr. Mufan, you have a lot of history on your side, but I think I want to give you a theory about why that history is not very relevant. I think that these cases that you have fall into three groups. Uh, the one are they are declaratory judgment actions in a world before declaratory judgment actions. In other words, they're ways to try to uh, determine legal rights going forward before the declaratory judgment form existed. The second group of cases are cases in which there's injury that's hard to monetize, and, and these cases are asking for something to uh, recompense that injury. But the reason why those cases aren't very relevant anymore is that in our world, we monetize those claims all the time. We now live in a world unlike the historical world in which we um, acknowledge claims for emotional distress, claims for dignitary harms of all kinds, um, which makes the nominal damages claim uh, unnecessary. The third group of cases is a case in which uh, what the plaintiff really wants is vindication. It's a statement that I'm right, the defendant is wrong. And as to those cases, modern Article Three jurisprudence says that, you know, you don't, that's not a case of controversy. So uh, given all that, what role is there anymore for nominal, nominal damages claims?
10: Your Honor, I, I don't think that that's an accurate characterization of the common law, and I'd like to make two points about that. So the first is, I would point this court, again, to Justice Story's opinion in Webb, where his primary reason that he gave for why nominal damages were appropriate is that he viewed it as essential in the common law that every injury imports damage in the nature of it, and if no other damage is established, the party injured is entitled to a verdict for nominal damages. That is essentially a recognition of a form of liquidated compensatory harm of at least a dollar, because the violation of a right isn't harmless, and if it's not harmless, it's entitled to at least a dollar. He then went on to say, a force your eye, if there's a risk of future harm, that would support nominal damages. But I think the critical point to recognize is the likelihood of a future trespass, or a future assault, or a future mistrain, none of that future likelihood would become close to meeting the Article Three requirements we have today of likelihood of future injury. Thank Justice, you. Justice Justice Gorsuch?
7: Uh, counsel, um, you said you had two points in response to Justice Kagan before proceeding. I just want to make sure you've got both of them out there.
10: Yeah, so I, the last point I was going to make is about a bucket of cases that the respondents cite in their brief that I think actually cuts the exact opposite way. There are a, a series of cases, they, they cited pages 34 to 35 of their brief, where common law courts Appellate courts said it was harmless error to not have awarded nominal damages precisely because there wasn't the likelihood of future harm. The respondents emphasized harmless, but the real key is that error. The appellate courts there recognized it was error not to award nominal damages even though there was no likelihood of future harm. So I think that very clearly demonstrates that the uh, common law courts were not viewing nominal damages as some sort of proto-declaratory judgment. They recognized it for exactly what Justice Story said it was. It was a recognition that every injury imports damage in the nature of it.
7: Just to make sure I understand uh, at least part of that response, uh, Justice Kagan posited, I believe it was her second bucket of cases in which today we're able to and uh, do monetize what maybe had been before Hard to monetize claims of emotional distress and things like that. Is, is the essence of your response, yes, maybe we do, and we have great lawyers and economists who can do that today, but one need not do that for Article 3 purposes because historically it was not done.
10: That's right. Uh, common law courts and Congress ratified that through Section 1983. were entitled to decide that you at least get a dollar. Now, if you have clever lawyers and you can do the sort of things that Justice Kagan identified, then you can get more. You can get quantified. You can get compensatory damages for quantifiable specific evidence of harm.
7: But perhaps one shouldn't be penalized for lacking a clever lawyer.
10: That's right, or another way of thinking about it is Congress is entitled to determine that the deprivation of a constitutional right isn't harmless, and if it's not harmless, then you're entitled to at least a dollar.
7: Thank you.
8: Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, and good morning, uh, Counsel. Picking up on Justice Thomas's question and the last part of Justice Breyer's question, I'm trying to, again, figure out what's really at stake here. Uh, this is not about the one dollar, uh, I wouldn't think. Uh, the concern about litigation being prolonged or an advisory opinion, you say that can be answered as I understand it because the defendant can always just surrender to the judgment uh, and the district court would enter judgment without adjudicating the merits. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So uh, that leaves me with the strong suspicion that attorney's fees is what's driving all this uh, on both sides uh, because under Buckhannon, uh correct me if I'm wrong. Uh if you sue for injunctive relief, the defendant changes the policy as happened here, um, you get no attorney's fees, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, but if you have nominal damages, you can get attorney's fees potentially, correct? Right. Under Ferrar. Right. So what seems to be driving this is that the reason the plaintiffs want nominal damages, plaintiffs generally want nominal damages to be available. Uh, is attorney's fees and the reasons defendants do not want them to be available is they don't want to pay attorney's fees, correct?
10: Uh, at least partly, I think at least some respondents or defendants might also want not might not want to pay the dollar because they don't want to admit any sort of wrongdoing, even right. in the tacit sense of paying a dollar without
8: saying that they were wrong on the merits. Got it. Okay, and then Judge Jacobs and Judge Henry though say. Uh, and I think this cuts in favor of your ultimate position here, but they say the attorney's fees can be uh concern of allowing nominal damages can be handled uh, and already have been handled under Farrar by saying you don't get much in the way of attorney's fees when you get nominal damages. Is that how you see it?
10: I think that's right. I think under Farrar, it's a reasonableness inquiry, and I think there are two main things you would look at. I think you would look at what the plaintiff sought. Did they seek $17 million and only get one, or did they seek $1 from the outset and only get it? And then the other thing I think you would look at.
8: What if they sought uh, injunctive relief and nominal damages, and the the defendant changed its policy so no injunctive relief, but they still get the nominal damages? How do you think attorney's fees works there? I think it would depend
10: on when it happened. I think that if the defendant changed their policy years into the litigation, I think there would be a much stronger case for the plaintiffs being able to say that they litigated the case, ultimately did get some relief that makes them a That sounds hard. like
8: an end run around Buckhannon, what you just said, but maybe I'm wrong about that.
10: Look, I think it partly depends on—it's a question about reasonableness. Farrar tells us that the dollar isn't an end-run-around buck and you are a failing party. And then the question is, who's acted reasonably? Justice Barrett?
9: Mr. Mupan, last term in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, we held the case, the Second Amendment Challenge, moot, because the city of New York changed its policy. Was that then really just kind of a technicality? If the uh, Pistol Association had sought nominal damages, would that case have had to come out the other way under your theory?
10: Yes, I think if they had always had a live nominal damages claim in a case like that, once you were already at the appellate court, uh, The court, There would have been a live claim, and they wouldn't have been able to just say, oh, we'll pay the dollar under uh, this court's decision in Young, which we cited in our brief. An appellate court's ability to just accept a concession like that is different from a district court.
9: Okay, well, then let me circle back to some of the questions that uh, various of my colleagues were pressing Ms. Wagoner on. You know, Justice Breyer, and then I asked this question. We're trying to get Ms. Wagner to identify any case that would ever be moot under your theory so long as nominal damages were sought. What, another way of getting at that point is you know, the majority of circuits do accept your theory and say that, there, that nominal damages can keep a case live or put differently, that seeking nominal damages, a plaintiff would have standing to seek nominal damages alone. So in that majority of circuits that follow the rule that you want us to adopt, do cases moot out?
10: They do, but I think the primary reason they do is there are a set of cases where nominal damages just aren't available. The most obvious for us, being the federal government, isn't subject to nominal damages, and lots of other statutes besides 1983 don't authorize nominal damages. Uh, but if nominal damages are otherwise legally available, then it would be difficult for a suit to move out if nominal damages were sought. But with the one caveat that as a practical matter – Lots of people aren't going to keep litigating a case just over nominal damages, especially given uh, Farrar's rule about the reasonableness of attorney's fees. So as a practical matter, uh, a lot of these cases will moot out, even if as a legal matter they don't.
9: Thank you. Mr. Mupin?
10: Uh So i just I just like to make one last point, uh, which I think is a pretty important one, which is there are lots of types of monetary relief that are neither Uh, dealing with future harm, nor based on quantifiable evidence of past harm, punitive damages, statutory damages, treble damages. All of those would seem to violate under Article Three under respondents' theory, but all of those are unquestionably permissible. I think the solution that uh, for why all of those are permissible shows why nominal damages are permissible too. It is that monetary relief has traditionally been recognized as a proper form of redress for past injury. In fact, and that simple rule is sufficient to rule for the petitioners here.
0: Thank you, counsel. General Pinson?
10: Thank you, Mr.
11: Chief Justice, and may it please the court. At bottom, the question whether nominal damages resist mootness in a case like this one reduces to the question whether nominal damages redress past injuries. When there's no longer any threat that a plaintiff's injury will recur in the future, a case is saved from mootness only if the court could still give the plaintiff something that redresses what's now a purely past injury. But nominal damages do not fit that bill. Generally, past injuries are redressed through compensation, but both modern and historical authorities agree that nominal damages aren't compensation. Unlike other kinds of damages, the law affirmatively strips nominal damages of that role. They're an indeterminate and trivial sum precisely because they're given as a symbol that although the plaintiff proved a legal violation, they're entitled to exactly zero compensation for it. That means nominal damages can't serve as independent redress for purely past injuries. And the body of common law bears that out. It's full of cases awarding nominal damages when giving them could establish or protect the plaintiff's legal rights going forward uh, or when they're a symbolic gesture given after a plaintiff failed to prove compensable injury for a legal violation. But petitioners haven't cited a single common law case that decided the merits of a legal claim where a plaintiff had sought Only nominal damages and awarding them couldn't affect the plaintiff's ongoing legal rights or interests. Without a working theory for how nominal damages can actually redress past injuries or historical evidence for that claim, the conclusion has to be that they aren't retrospective relief that saves the case from mootness when there's no longer a threat of continuing injury. I welcome this court's question.
0: Counsel, is your uh, position that... uh nominal damages are never sufficient on their own to establish standing or prevent mootness? In other words, f- sure. from uh, sort of under our modern jurisprudence, there should be no such thing as nominal damages?
11: That's not our position, and that's because at common law, uh, nominal damages were available in the same role as, as what you would normally see a declaratory judgment claim brought today when it concerns the legality of past conduct. So our, our test would be whether the nominal damages uh, could redress a continuing present adverse effect on a plaintiff's legal rights or interests. So they can't well,
0: Yeah, well then today you're saying that uh, or under today's legal regime that if you ask for nominal damages, uh you're really just asking for a declaratory judgment and if there's some reason a declaratory judgment is not available uh, then the nominal damages are not sufficient. And in other words, it's just using the wrong label for the type of action you're bringing.
11: It, it, I could envision a case where nominal damages might have a separate role because they aren't discretionary uh, like equitable remedies, but generally that's that's correct, Your Honor. Uh,
0: Joseph Story's name has been uh, bandied about a little bit. What, what is your answer to his position?
11: Sure, um, and it's this this web case that uh, my colleagues on the other side have referred to, and there's there's two points there. One is that the the general. Uh, notion that you hear of every injury importing a damage. What that meant at the common law was that the petitioners or the plaintiffs had a damages claim and so they would bring that damages claim and you see that in all of petitioners' cases and if they weren't able to prove it the nominal damages could be given to reflect that outcome. But I think the more important thing about Webb is in that case that that's a riparian rights case. That is the paradigmatic kind of case where nominal damages could be sought on their own because they offered some sort of prospect of relief. In those cases, they allowed um, plaintiffs to fend off uh, creation of prescriptive rights or um, show boundaries or establish uh, riparian rights. Uh,
0: What if uh, Congress uh, uh, passed a law and they wanted uh, private to encourage private enforcement, so they uh, said that if you you prevail, you get statutory damages of $1? Uh, Is that a suit that can be brought?
11: So uh, I... Mr. Chief Justice, I think that's a difficult question. Normally, uh, statutory damages, we would say, uh, serve this role that, that petitioners want um, nominal damages to serve. They're a compensation for sometimes harms that are hard to quantify. But if it's only a dollar, I think it likely depends on the injury being redressed because the whole reason that common law courts... Um, would allow giving them a nominal dollar is because it was a trivial sum, which meant that it could serve as that symbol. So arguably Congress, when they do that, if all they're doing is giving that same trivial sum and it's really a vehicle for advisory opinions, I think the court would have to look carefully at that. Well,
0: I mean, is your answer the same with the uh, uh, allegation that, you know, for the gas that it took to drive the three blocks uh, to, to, this, to the campus or something like that? Is, would you say that's just too small?
11: No, a different answer there because that's uh, compensatory damages, whatever the amount, uh, are recognized as relief of a past injury. That was true at common law even when the amount of damages were small, and it's true today um, in this court's decisions like scrap. I think it's only in in the circumstances where the, the damages being given are the specific um, nominal damages remedy or something that's that sort of trying to do that by some other means that, that you run into the problem of not having uh, any sort of compensation for a past harm. Justice Thomas?
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, General Pinson, uh, are there cases in which uh, the court has awarded nominal damages uh, because of uh, failure proof of uh, uh, actual damages?
11: um case, cases of this court i think um at least the court said in cases like carry and statura that at the end of a case that that nominal damages could be awarded and and, and ferrar did the same thing
2: so why would why would there be standing in a case like that?
11: Uh, you have standing in a case like that because uh, compensatory damages claim allowed the court to decide the case um, and and I, I understand the the potential resistance to that right that you need standing for a separate for each separate claim of relief. The answer is that at the common law these claims were not pled in the alternative the the claim that allowed petitioners, that allowed the plaintiffs to um, seek relief was a damages claim. If they stated a legal injury, they got, uh, it imported the damage and they got that claim. Um, that would allow the court to adjudicate the merits. And then the nominal damages awarded if they weren't able to prove substantial damages was just a symbolic gesture. It reflected the outcome and allowed the court to give costs. But it, but court said over and over that it wasn't actually compensating anything.
2: Well, that seems to be at war with the, uh, with the existence of standing, though, don't you think? Uh, it,
11: it is, um, uh, again, if you, if you treat that as a separate claim for relief, um, that's an understandable uh, response. And, and all I can say is that at the common law, um, those courts didn't treat it like that. And they didn't treat it as as giving any separate relief. They treated it as an outcome, um, or, or a symbol for that outcome. So, so it's, it's bound up with that damages claim in a way that allowed the courts to give it.
2: And, in, in this case, uh, and at the 11th Circuit, uh, the, um, the Court of Appeals seemed to dispose of this, uh, simply with, uh, and, uh, with Flanagan by citing Flanagan. And I don't quite understand why, uh, that case should, uh, uh, cover this case where there was actual enforcement here, but no enforcement in Flanagan's?
11: Um, so Flanagan's, you're correct that in Flanagan's there was no actual enforcement. Our position is that the enforcement or not does not matter because even if there was enforcement and what the plaintiffs are seeking is redress for a past injury, nominal damages um, Aren't the answer to that. Um, so you could view the decision below as a slight extension of Flanagan's if you um, if you view Flanagan's as turning on the lack of enforcement. But in our view, the uh, our position doesn't change, and we would say that that neither case um, presented a justiciable controversy.
2: Did uh, the Court of Appeals say that uh, make the same point that you're making?
11: Um, uh, well, both in Flanagan's and the Court of Appeals applying Flanagan's below um, make the point that nominal damages do not redress past harm. That, that's, that's the basis for Flanagan's, and it's the basis for the decisions that Flanagan's relied on, like Judge McConnell's um, important concurrence in Utah Animal Rights Coalition. Thank you. Justice Breyer?
3: Uh, thank you. Well, what about when they do redress past harm? Jones owns Black Acre. Smith, his hostile neighbor, regularly picnics on Black Acre, and then he dies or some unfortunate thing. He's never going to do it again. Well, what's the damage? I mean, all he did was picnic, pretty hard to measure, and so nominal damages. Or a college says, you can't pray here, young student. And imagine that policy is unconstitutional. And suppose he was stopped from praying. What's the damage? Can you say there was no damage? There was. But what is it? How do you measure it? I don't know. And the same with speech. He wanted to speak there. He was constitutional, unconstitutionally forbidden to do it. Well, he was about to give his speech. What's the damage? Now, don't nominal damages have a place right there where there is damage? But it's just
11: impossible to measure. Justice Breyer, they do not. Um, Certainly that's petitioner's position. They want nominal damages to um, redress harms that are difficult or impossible to quantify. But that's just not what nominal damages did at the common law. There were other solutions that the common law had for that problem. One was presumed damages, which were compensatory damages given even if plaintiffs weren't able to prove a certain Right. Um, I accept what out, you yeah. say
3: there, it wasn't the theory of common law hypothetically, but isn't it a fairly good line to draw to keep the, uh, to keep the cases out of the court where all you have is a theoretical argument that this is unconstitutional, never hurt you, from okay. those cases where there is unconstitutionality and genuine harm, but difficult to measure.
11: Justice Breyer, I I don't think it's a a line that this court is allowed to draw because it draws, well, Article 3 draws from the common law, and the common law said that nominal damages don't serve that role. But in addition, there there are other solutions to uh, that uh, concern. Um, First, of course... Go ahead, please. First, of course, th- that those kinds of harms often result in um, more established kinds of compensable injury, whether it's intangible injuries like emotional distress or tangible ones. Um, in addition, in, in some kinds of cases, petitioners can seek compensation precisely for lost opportunities to exercise constitutional rights. The voting rights context is an important one, and that's one that the, the court noted in Statura, um, where plaintiffs can actually seek compensatory damages for those lost opportunities, separate and apart from the abstract uh, value of the right itself. Um, and, and then, of course, beyond that, um, petitioners in these kinds of cases often um, – uh, uh, the object of the suit is not the the small or difficult to measure um, past harm. What they want is a change in the law or policy, and of course, prospective relief is available for that. Um, and then, and then finally, uh, it's always on the table for Congress to offer a kind of statutory damages of a non-trivial amount. Um, to if it turns out that there's a class of cases where those kinds of harms aren't and need to be compensated. Thank you.
0: Justice Alito? Well, let, let me pick up
4: exactly where you left off. So let's say Congress amends 1983. It says whenever a violation of the First Amendment is proven in a past violation, the plaintiff shall be awarded statutory damages of $1. You would say there is no,
11: st- there is no standing there because that's,
4: that sum is too low. Is that right?
11: Justice Leto, again, I think that's a difficult question, Um, and I I think it's difficult because you have two different common law analogs that you have to try to square. The first analog is that at the common law, too, you had uh, statutory damages, and those uh, plaintiffs could could seek statutory damages alone, and they had uh, standing to do that. Um, Those were compensation often for kinds of harms that either – were very easy to assign a value to or very hard. But then you also had nominal damages. And the reason nominal damages worked in their symbolic role of common law is because they were trivial. So when Congress assigns that trivial amount to, uh, quote, unquote, statutory damages, I think you have to look hard at it to know whether it's actually something giving compensation or not. Um, so in the So of-
4: your answer, to, to cut to the chase, your answer is that statutory that when there is injury in fact, and there must be injury in fact, statutory damages cannot be awarded unless they can reasonably be regarded as a quantification, uh, a monetization of the amount of the harm. Is that it?
11: Uh, Justice Alito, I don't think they have to precisely quantify the harm, and in fact, the Well, what if it's damage. $10? What if it's not $1? What if it's 10 I, I I think it's a hard line drawing problem. Um, well, and, that's why and, I'm asking the question, because I need
4: help with this hard line drawing problem.
11: Right. And, and Justice Alito, again, what I'd say is I I think if, if you can reasonably say that that's compensation, even if it's partial compensation or compensation for difficult-to-prove injuries, um, then then that provides article 3 redress and and i i think that that should be the presumption i think it's only when you get down to that very small level maybe a dollar or below because that's that's where we we assign nominal damages today uh that you get into the the problem with congress possibly um trying an end around uh, this court's standing doctrine.
4: All right, another, another question. Is it necessary for a plaintiff to have standing with respect to every form of relief that the plaintiff
11: seeks in a complaint? It is. That's, that's the court's rule in, in the town of Chester in other cases.
4: So if we agree with you here,
11: I don't quite see how nominal damages
4: could ever be awarded
11: justice lido i think I think there are two ways first their their principal purpose at common law of course was nominal damages awarded to establish a right, uh, so they would still serve that role here but what I gather you 're getting at is is the the sort of secondary role where you have a compensatory damages claim that fails uh, before the end of the case and the answer there is um, one that 's what common law courts did um, we see that. over and over that they didn't treat nominal damages as a separate claim of relief, um, but just reflecting the outcome. Um, and then, uh, second, I, I, I think it gets to what we're really, what we're really getting at by asking this question. Um, we know that common law courts did that. The plaintiffs say that it shows therefore that they compensated past harm. Um, but the common law courts say that they didn't do that. Well, you're relying
4: very heavily. You're relying very heavily on, on the common law. Do you want us just to apply the common law rule? And if
11: so, weren't nominal damages available at common law? Nominal damages <clears throat> were available at common law, but they they weren't. Um, independently justiciable redress for past harms. Um, for, for all of the cases that petitioners cite and that the government cites and, and that we cite, um, there are no common law cases out there where plaintiffs were bringing nominal damages claims alone without any prospect of uh, of future redress. Um, all of those cases, petitioners, the plaintiffs had brought actual damages claims and then they failed for lack of proof. Um, I think my time is up. Thank you.
5: Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, in addition to the questions that Justice Alito had, seems that your argument doesn't make any sense of other of our, our precedents where we've held and you don't dispute in your briefing or here that the award of punitive damages can qualify you to have standing But we very clearly have stated that punitive damages are not to compensate the injured party, but rather to punish the tortfeasor and deter him and others from similar extreme conduct. If a case has been mooted because an act is not capable of repetition, there's no need to impose punitive damages, no matter how reprehensible the conduct may be. So I don't know how you can concede that punitive damages give you standing under your theory of the case?
11: Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I, I, I think the difference between punitive damages and nominal damages, and, and frankly, between other kinds of monetary relief and nominal damages, is only nominal damages are conceived of as a symbol for zero compensation. Um, punitive damages, although their purpose is to deter and to punish, um, they can they they don't have that sort of legal roadblock that prevents them from being any kind of relief for past harms um, and in fact, professor dobbs uh, and and other remedy scholars explain that they do provide some incidental compensation, um, although the law authorizes them for other purposes um, and I think one one example from this court's case is Steel Company notes that the civil penalties that were awarded in that case, if they were awarded to the plaintiff, even though they were punitive, um, would provide a sort of compensation or redress to the plaintiff themselves, even though that's not their purpose. Um, so I think th- those are just distinct from nominal damages. Anyway. My, my
5: problem, counsel, is that then you're talking about quantifying an amount of damage ex ante you're basically saying $1 is not enough when we've said even for compensatory damages that no matter how small your injury and even if a jury gives you $1, that that would be enough as compensatory damages, not nominal damages. You've proven an injury. And nominal damages are directed to be paid to the plaintiff. He or she may not think they got too much, I certainly presided over many cases in which the jury's award was infinitesimally small compared to the claimed injuries, but you've been still compensated. I don't understand why $1 is not viewed as a form of alternative compensation. Uh,
11: Justice Sotomayor, um, the reason that the dollar of compensatory damages is compensation for a past injury is because we've accepted that um, which is really a legal fiction that it offers um, that it offers the plaintiff some substitutionary relief for whatever their loss was, whether it's tangible or intangible. Uh, the problem is that again, nominal damages at common law. Um, Weren't conceived of in that way. A a chorus of commentators and cases say that they aren't compensation, but they're symbolic only. McCormick on Damages um, says they're in no sense compensation. Um, English cases like Beaumont versus Greathead say that they have no existence in point of quantity. And then, and then a whole host of
5: counsel. We go back to the to, to the starting point of my question. Now, there are punitive damages. They're not viewed as compensation. But what they are is a measure of recovery, whether we call it compensation, punitive damages, statutory damages. These are monies that are paid to the plaintiff, whether it's one cent or $100 million. It's still money that the plaintiff is entitled to receive.
11: But Justice Sotomayor, if, if nominal damages are not compensation, it's not clear to me what else that dollar could be doing to redress the plaintiff. Again, the reason that dollars redress past harms is because they are compensation. But when they're not, and and the common law says that nominal damages are not, um, then you need an alternative explanation for what they're doing to specifically redress the plaintiff's injury. Um, and, and we don't see that from, from the petitioner or from anywhere else. Justice Kagan? G-
6: General, you said several times Uh, that nominal damages are just
11: symbolic.
6: And what, what are they symbolic of?
11: They are symbolic of the fact that a plaintiff has proved a legal violation but is entitled to zero compensation for it.
6: I mean, that makes it sound like it's a dismissal of the plaintiff's claim almost. You know, like the libel suit where it's like, well, technically you committed libel, but you really don't have any damages because you're you know, such a terrible person to begin with. But that's not mostly what we're dealing with here. I mean, I, I would have thought that most of these suits that we're talking about are suits where the dollar is actually symbolic of, of, of your winning, of vindication, not of nothingness.
11: Uh, justice Kagan it, it is symbolic of the fact that the plaintiff proved a legal violation um, one of the practical reasons common law courts gave nominal damages was was so that they could say they, they could count that a victory in the sense that they could carry costs um, the, the problem is that it was also symbolic of the fact that the plaintiff um either didn't have a compensable injury or wasn't able to prove it in any amount.
6: Um, let, me give you, let, me, let me give you a case. I don't
11: know what, what case, uh,
6: who this cuts in favor of, you or um, uh, the petitioners, but I thought I'd ask it because it's the most famous nominal damages case I know of in recent times, which is a Taylor Swift sexual assault case. Do you know that one?
11: Uh, vaguely, Your
6: Honor. Yeah, you know, it was a few years ago and she brought a suit against um, a radio host for uh, sexually assaulting her and she said, I'm not really interested in your money. I just want a dollar and that dollar is going to represent something both to me and to the world of women who have experienced what I've experienced. And that's what happened. The jury gave her a dollar uh, and, and it was it an was no, unquestionable physical harm but she just asked for this one dollar to say that she had been harmed. Why Why? why not? Uh,
11: a couple things, Justice Kagan. First of all, that sounds like compensatory damages. She may have only asked for a dollar of it, but she alleged clear compensable injuries, and so the jury could award that dollar in response.
6: I thought um, you might say that, but then why isn't that the same as this? Um, uh, the petitioner here said he was harmed, he wasn't able to speak when he should have been able to speak. And, um, you know, whether it's hard to monetize or it's not hard to monetize, uh, he's just asking for a dollar to redress that harm.
11: If the dollar, Justice Kagan, isn't actually compensating that harm, and, and again, it's unique to nominal damages. That well, these they are aren't just words.
6: In the same way that Taylor Swift's harm compensated her, so too here. I mean, they don't really compensate anybody, but uh, it's all the plaintiff wants for, a, yep. for, for an acknowledged harm. Uh,
11: two things. One, it, there's, there is a difference in the law between small damages and no damages. The common law cases say that, that nominal damages are no damages, not...
6: Nobody thinks that problem. being sexually assaulted is
11: really only worth a dollar.
6: Nobody thinks that. It's worth a lot more than that. But that's all she wanted. She wanted to prove a point.
11: And and she had the ability to seek uh, compensatory damages for that. The proving the point, however, um, is not something that federal courts exist to do. However important that dollar is to Taylor Swift um, or or anyone else in constitutional claims or otherwise.
6: Well, could um, she or couldn't she? Could she bring that suit or couldn't she bring that suit?
11: For nominal damages alone, um, outside of some prospect of recurrence, which I, I would hope would not be the case, then no, that, that claim is moot. Um, it, the, she needs to allege a compensable injury and ask for compensation for that. That's just fundamentally different from what nominal damages were.
5: Thank you, General.
11: Justice Gorsuch.
7: Good morning, Counsel. I'd like to kind of pick up there. Just so, just so we start on an agreed slate, it isn't the amount that's the problem. One dollar isn't the problem. So if the plaintiff here had introduced a, a bus receipt for his fare of less than a dollar and demonstrated that was tied to his injury, that would count. And if uh, Ms. Swift had uh, come in with some sort of receipt of some kind, uh, that would support her one dollar claim, right? Right. Okay, so it all turns on the label of compensation and, and courts are going to have to figure that out. Is, is that fair?
11: Uh, I think that's fair. Although, okay. I, I mean, I would say there are plenty of kinds of compensation. The
7: only thing sure. that doesn't work is nominal damages. Sure, I understand. I got that point. So w- I think the result is a rule that disadvantages perhaps two classes of persons particularly. First may be those like Ms. Swift who have some scruple um, or reason not to seek more. Who could? Um, and we had a lot of Amiki briefs from religious groups um, that indicate, for example, that they have religious scruples against seeking damages for some injuries they 've suffered. So they lose out um, people like Miss Swift and groups like that and then it seems to me the second group that that, that, that loses out are individuals whose claims are not sufficiently great to attract the attention of clever lawyers and economists to come up with damages theories, emotional harm and distress is a particular example. Areas where it's difficult to quantify damages and expensive to do so uh, require a large enough damage to justify the effort. Uh, so we disadvantage persons like that. Um, it seems to me that's ex- those are the kind of classes of persons exactly for whom nominal damages were designed in the first place. Um, and can you, can you respond to that concern?
11: Justice Gorsuch, I, uh, I guess first I would say I'll start with the end. I, I'm not sure that's what nominal damages were designed for in the first place. Well,
7: I, 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 I'm fair, but per, perhaps they were designed in part to ensure that someone who had suffered a legal wrong uh, uh, does not lose out simply because of a failure of proof about damages. And I think that's often going to happen in that second class of cases I talked about, where the damages are not great enough to warrant the work. So what do you say about that?
11: Uh, uh, Again, Justice Gorsuch, and I I guess going back to my colleague with Justice Breyer, I I think there are lots of ways that those plaintiffs um, could still seek compensatory damages um, and, and maybe it's a little bit of extra work, but I'm, I'm not sure it's it's a great deal. Um, it, it just requires us to think about the established kinds of damages that you can get as a result of violations of those um, particular legal rights. Um, adding an emotional distress claim, if a plaintiff... Um, mm-hmm you know, has an objective, a reasonable basis in fact for that claim is not, I think, a, a so heavy a lift that you're going to cut out um, plaintiffs from court. The, the other thing I'd say is that I'm not sure why nominal damages is uh, a, a satisfactory solution if that's the concern. After all, it is a trivial sum. And, and if what the plaintiffs are after is not the dollar, but having the court tell them that their rights have been
7: violated. Again, that, that's not what federal courts uh, exist right. to do. I, I Thank you. One, one last question I'd like to squeeze in quickly. You'd agree that in, in those cases where we have the bus receipt showing 25 cents, or so less than a dollar, the attorney's fees problem uh, recurs. So you're going to have attorney's fees in those cases, so that can't be a good reason not to allow those fees, Right. Mm-hmm. I
11: agree that attorney fees would be available if compensatory damages are awarded. Sure. Okay, thank you.
8: Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, and good morning, Mr. Pinson. Uh, picking up on uh, things that Justice Alito and Justice Sotomayor said, it seems that there are a number of things working against you here, uh, potentially the history, the common law cases, um, the precedent of uh, this court that seems to have recognized in certain situations, nominal damages, cases like Cary, that we'd have to deal with. Um, The line-drawing problem that Justice Alito raised, in other words, how do we distinguish uh, potential statutes Congress might enact that awarded a dollar or or that kind of statutory damages? And Justice Sotomayor asked about various forms of damages, too, so we'd have a line-drawing. And then um, one thing I wanted to ask you about: This seems to be working fine in all the other circuits that allow nominal damages. At least, I'm not aware that there's huge problems. Is that uh, incorrect? Just I realize that's not a legal point; more a practical point. But can you respond to that,
11: uh, Justice Kavanaugh? I, I I would point you at least to the states Amicus brief at 14 through 18. I I can't say that there are are sort of floodgates opened of nominal damages claims in those circuits. But you do have cases where um, governments, even those sort of acting in good faith to make policy changes, have... um, Still, sort of face the problems of litigating suits for long periods of time and getting hit with large damages awards, um, despite sort of quick resolutions of um, any prospective relief. Well, let claim. me
8: let me ask you about that. And you obviously have answers to everything I just mentioned on the law, but some of the practical problems you've raised, and one of them right there, the extended or wasteful litigation. Can't uh, a defendant avoid that by paying the one dollar? Uh, the district court or the trial court enters judgment. That's not a judgment on the merits. It has no preclusive effect. Uh, what's the What's the problem with
11: that approach? Justice Kavanaugh, it, it's not so clear to me that that judgment wouldn't have not only preclusive effect but, but other effects. It, at least one Second Circuit case, RADHA, 909F3rd534, Um, And and I guess a couple of others have noted that a default judgment, um, uh, Wright and Miller says this, is actually treated as a conclusive and final adjudication of the issues necessary to justify the relief awarded. Um, So I I think a preclusive effect is a real concern, but even beyond that, um, we often have individual public servants who, are, who have been sued in these cases. I think it's um, probably not fair to them for governments to um, force them to accept, particularly if there's a liability judgment on the line, to accept that kind of liability um, against them in their individual capacities just to avoid prolonged litigation. Um, and, and then, and then there are there are other various uh, harms to governments as well from just accepting judgments. It might be a different case if we could literally just deposit the dollar, and the case becomes moot. Um, but I'm not sure of a procedural mechanism for doing that.
8: Okay. And then on the attorney's fees uh, question that's been raised, um, those if those were fully available. Um, then that would provide obviously an incentive for some plaintiffs to continue litigating uh, even if there was no other injunctive or compensatory relief at stake. But my understanding of the case law for R and seems to be how it's applied in most lower courts is that uh, plaintiffs do not receive much in the way of attorney's fees uh, when they only receive nominal damages and therefore the incentive to litigate wastefully is not uh, as present. It's not zero, I would acknowledge, uh, but it's not as present. Can you respond to that? Uh, yes. So uh, I do think that the better reading
11: of Ferrar is that generally you shouldn't get any attorney's fees for a, a, a nominal damages award. Um, but but I, that isn't necessarily borne out in practice. We see from the, again, the state's amicus brief at, at 20 lists several Six-figure attorneys' fees awards from nominal damages cases, and I think those are sort of just examples of cases. Um, there, there are quite a few more out there. Thank you, Justice Barrett.
9: Counsel, I understood in your briefing you to make two points about why nominal damages are insufficient under Article Three. One being there, the prospective, not retrospective, point. These are really declaratory judgments and then the other focusing on the amount and saying the very trivial amount shows that these really can't be compensatory. But it seems to me that in your responses to Justice Alito's questions, Justice Kagan's questions, Justice Gorsuch's questions, you've kind of gone back and forth on the triviality of the money point. So, you know, you, you suggested to Justice Alito that at some point it's so little money that really should be taken into account. But, of course, our precedents say that, you know, even, even a small amount is enough and so in the Taylor Swift example or in Justice Gorsuch's bus fare example, I heard you, at least I took you to concede that even a very trivial amount would constitute a compensatory injury under Article Three. So is that part of your argument still with respect to nominal damages? Are you, are you still hanging your hat on the amount, the $1 being too little, and just exclusively focusing on the, focusing on the prospective nature?
11: Uh, the the trivial nature of the award, Justice Barrett, matters only because that, that was the way that the common law um, set nominal damages as a symbol. Um, and so my response to Justice Alito reflected that, that what if Congress is really doing is, ref, is, is setting a trivial amount so that it serves as a symbol but doesn't offer any compensation, that would be different. But our, our primary... Argument is is simply that nominal damages, in their nature, do not serve as any compensation, um, um, regardless of whether the court decides in a given case. So what does a, the money a have or
9: to? Not. So what does the money have to do with it? Are we trying to figure out? You know, Justice Kagan's question suggested that really what Taylor Swift wanted was you know vindication of of the the moral right, the the legal right that sexual assault is reprehensible and wrong. Are we looking at the motivation for the suit? So could nominal damages actually be compensatory for one person but not for another?
11: No, no, I I I don't think that's right, Justice Barrett. Um, the the nominal damages dollar isn't isn't compensation in any sense. Um, the the difference, I guess, is is that again, in those cases where vindication is sought, um that's just not enough, right? So it, it doesn't matter what their motivation is. Vindication under Steel Company and and other cases is is not Article Three redress because it doesn't address any injury. So what's this? F- so- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and then and so those are the two aspects. Those are really the two big things that nominal damages do. There's the dollar and there's the vindication. The dollar, common law cases say, doesn't compensate, and vindication isn't enough by itself.
9: So what is the effect of your argument on the very, very many consumer protection statutes we have, like the Telephone Consumer Protection Act or the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act? You know, I, I think in those cases, statutory damages... We might think of them, you know, let's say it's $100, but you also get attorney's fees, as about vindicating, you know, a right and having a deterrent effect on, you know, the, the industry. Um, if Congress reduced that amount of statutory damages down to a dollar, I mean, I don't see why it's any different. So would this call into question whether those causes of action really are unconstitutional under Article Three in many cases? I mean, you know, under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, you get a couple annoying texts. You know, that's, that's pretty slight. As a statutory damage, you know, if you seek statutory damages, are you seeking anything other than to, to vindicate? Is that compensatory?
11: Uh, Justice Barrett, I, I think it is. And, and the last example you gave I think is a, a helpful one. But if the injury at issue is a slight injury, um, then a slight amount of damages would still be viewed as or, or we should presume that it's still compensatory damages um, when, when it's given as statutory damages so I, I don't think there's any problem but the petitioners
9: with that. here haven't suffered such a slight injury
11: well I, I I wouldn't say that it's a a slight injury I think the problem for petitioners is that that the injury they've alleged is um, uh, not one susceptible to proof, and, and again, I, so you can I, seek I, I the
9: damages for receiving a couple of annoying texts, but not for having your First Amendment rights violated.
11: You can't seek nominal damages for the, the bare violation of First Amendment rights. You can Thank seek you, compensatory counsel. damages. A minute to wrap up, counsel. Uh, I'll end with with two quick points. Um, first, uh, I want to stress that I, the way that this case was resolved is a good thing. Litigation prompted college officials to review their policies. And just 10 weeks later, to revise them in a way that um, maximized and respected First Amendment rights on campus, not just for petitioners, but for all students. And it even led to an enduring statewide policy change for every public college in Georgia. That kind of early out-of-court resolution should be encouraged, uh, and keeping nominal damages in their limited historical role does that while still allowing existing mootness doctrine to guard against bad faith or strategic mooting. And then second, whatever the policy implications, this case comes down to what kinds of cases Article Three allows federal courts to resolve. Article Three takes its court cues from common law practice, and the common law made clear over and over that it's just wrong to think of nominal damages as a small amount of compensation. That means nominal damages can't save the case from mootness when changed circumstances relieve any threat of future injuries. This court should affirm the judgment below. Thank you.
1: Thank
0: you, Counsel. Ms. Wagoner?
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Four points in response. First, to return to first principles. Partial redress is still redress. This Court has held that rule over and over again. When money changes hands, that is a tangible benefit for Article Three purposes. Several justices have raised questions as to what the purpose of nominal damages are. Symbolic has come to mind. Yes, they're symbolic in the sense that they are, there is an intrinsic value to the lost constitutional right that far exceeds the 110 or $100 that is afforded in response for that. Second, vindication. And vindication does occur through a nominal damages award just as with any other award. Third, compensation. Yes, it provides compensation in an amount that recognizes the damage is done. And that too serves a valid purpose under Article Three. My second point is that, as Justice Alito mentioned with my friend, statutory damages statutory damages should satisfy Article Three, and my friend on the other side suggests that they do. The reason that they do is for the reasons I just mentioned, and there's no principled basis to deny nominal damages claims here. The common law has a number of cases where there is no compensatory claims asserted and there's no prospective relief at issue, yet the court still awarded nominal damages. Doherty, Moon, Thompson, even Ashby recognizes that a cuff on the ear is sufficient for nominal damages. That's on pages 8 through 10, all of those cases of our reply brief. There are so many carve-outs under my friend's rule that it proves the rule and the practical effect boxes out, especially civil rights victims. The rule works, it's a long-standing rule that's been in place for hundreds of years, and it hasn't resulted in protracted litigation, and there is no incentive for plaintiffs or their attorneys to file standalone damages with Ferrar in place in terms of the fees. But a word about the fees. Section 1988 and 1983 and this court have held that it's critical To not only the plaintiffs that are losing their civil rights and injured in these actions, but it's critical to our nation and it's a noble purpose to vindicate those constitutional rights. A change of the rule here leaves victims that have serious constitutional injuries unredressed, out in the cold. It also forces victims to reveal intrusive information, as in Flanagan's or about their mental health records, or churches who have scruples about asserting compensatory damages to, to prove those damages, and instead of limiting the litigation, it actually expands it, complicates it, and actually causes more liability for the government. In closing, in 2013, Georgia Gwinnett officials knew that this rule was unconstitutional. They received a letter. Telling Chike that he was silenced not only violated his rights, but it results in the government walking away from past harms that they caused. This is a solution that is in search of a problem, but a reversal actually creates the problem. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.